1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though, as apostle of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless you were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you unto his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we've um, said after reading it that it's your word, and we pray this morning that you will speak it afresh into uh, each of our lives and into this congregation as we gather, that we might hear you uh, directing and leading us as people, as a church. For your name's sake. Amen. How can you insist that God will judge people, that there will be a heaven and a hell? How can you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Doesn't that condemn other religions and spiritual people, no matter how sincere they are? Isn't that the height of arrogance? Do those kind of questions sound kind of familiar? Are they ones you've heard? They've always been these since the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus being preached. For anyone who missed chapter 1, uh, we're spending a few weeks in Greece. Nice thought in our imaginations, in a place called Thessalonica. Um, the people there that were getting this letter for the first time, they're a brand new church. Uh, they've heard three weeks of teaching from Paul. Um, but, they, uh, but Paul and the others were drummed out of town they were because there was uh, jealousy from the Jewish contingent. But still, after just three weeks, this little church is a model to others we've read in chapter 1. Because they, if you go to right to the end of chapter 1, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So this little church, brand new, facing all kinds of suffering and persecution and opposition, and a model to others. 
Now, one of the tactics that um, I imagine from reading chapter 2, I imagine that part of the opposition that this little uh, baby church was facing is that people were rubbishing Paul who told them about Jesus. Yeah? Often you find if you don't like a political uh, party, uh, if, if someone doesn't like a political party, I mean, at the moment it's quite easy, but they, do, they just attack the leader, don't they? They attack the leader and they attack all the leader's motives. And yeah, anyway, there are, it, that would have been a good illustration a few years ago when you found a leader with a bit more principle. But here that's exactly what it seems has happened to Paul. They, they may have been saying something like, you know, he was only around for three weeks, you know. He wasn't really interested in you. He just wanted to save his own skin. Or maybe they were questioning his motives. You know, he was probably after your money. He was up to something. He was probably just one of those, you know, those cranky fundamentalist types. Oh, you don't want to be, you don't want to be seen with him, do you? And what we read, therefore, in chapter 2 is actually really quite a personal defence of what Paul did with them when he was in Thessalonica. It's passionate, it's personal. Over and over again, he appeals to them. So remember, look down with me. Uh, verse 1, don't really know. This repeated phrase, you know. Verse 1, you know that our visit was not without results. Verse 5, you know we never use flattery. Verse 9, surely you remember. Verse 10, you are our witnesses, and so is God. So it's very personal. But the reason it's so personal, it's not because Paul's worried about his reputation. He's worried about them. That as people start attacking him, attacking his motives, that they won't lose sight of the fact that they heard the truth about God. That heaven and hell are real. There really is only one saviour sent by God himself coming into the world, Jesus. And Paul is concerned for the church. They won't lose their confidence in that message, that truth. So chapter 1, if you were here or if you weren't, he he talks about their experience and how they knew it was authentic. Chapter 2, where we are today, he's talking about his ministry, his preaching, and why they can know that that is authentic too. And what we get from that in chapter 2 is we get the dynamics of true Christian ministry being described. This is how you choose a church. You want a minister like this. This is how you choose leaders in a church. It's, it's all about pleasing God, not people. And it's, it's about loving people sacrificially. That's genuine Christian ministry that you will see here. And, and, as I, and as we go through it, let's think about it, just before we go through it, think about how it will apply. It will apply to all of us. We all obviously want to be inspired by Paul's example. But it especially applies to the people through in the church hall now, doing teaching to the Sunday club to the people who come at the front and open the Bible and teach on a Sunday, to any of us in a leadership position in the church, it particularly applies to us because we want to be authentic Christian ministers. And so we need to understand what that looks like so we can pray for that to be happening. We as a congregation will want to understand it so we can choose the right people to be leaders and to be preachers. So it's people with certain roles in the church it will particularly apply to, but also people with God-given responsibilities for teaching others in the family, bringing up children. You'll see at the end that Paul talks about the example of a mother, the example of a father. And this will apply to parents and to some extent godparents and aunts and uncles and grandparents. Genuine Christian ministry, genuine Christian parenting is about pleasing God, not people, 
And it's about loving people sacrificially. So let's look at the first of those, pleasing God, not people. Uh, look at uh, verse 4, second half is where Paul says it. We were not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. He's being accused of, of all sorts of things in verse 3. He's being accused, if you look there, of uh, error in his message, of impurity in his motives, of trickery in his methods. In other words, he's being accused of being a dodgy preacher. Dodgy message, dodgy motives, dodgy methods. And there are lots of people out there, let's be real, there are lots of people out there who that would be true of. Preachers, faith healers, religious gurus, psychotherapists, counsellors, parents, who are basically people pleasers. They say whatever the crowd wants to hear, and we know what children are like if their parents always say yes and never say no. Do you want to have those in a, do you want to babysit for those children? <laughs> you don't, do you? <laughs> and it's the same in everything in life. It's a very practical thing to be a people pleaser, isn't it? You end up being very popular because you only ever say yes. You say whatever people want to hear so they'll listen to you, follow you, vote for you and join the movement. But if you find a Sunday school teacher or a Christian preacher who is a people pleaser, then you will most likely find someone with a dodgy message. They won't tell you the hard things in the Bible. They'll tell you about heaven, but they won't warn about hell. They, they won't apply what God says to your sex life as well as to your spiritual life. They'll be a people pleaser with a dodgy message. They'll have dodgy motives. Of course, none of us are, per- are perfectly pure. I'm conscious of, of my need to apply this to myself today. And my need for you to pray that I am an authentic Christian minister. All of us need that. But, but dodgy motives, because as soon as you start to be basically, uh, you're, you're preaching to the crowd, you want your acceptance from people, and as soon as that's your motivation, then all sorts of nasty things grow. Uh, verse 5 talks about putting on a mask to cover up greed. It may just be the greed for positive approval ratings from other people, it may well be the greed for money. And I think Christians are rightly shocked by the idea that there are preachers out there who are good preachers. They really, you know, they, they bring the Bible alive when they're preaching, but they are motivated, at least in part, by the desire for money and status. They don't look like they are. It says, doesn't it, in verse 5, they put on a mask to cover it up. But if you look at their lifestyle, the big house, the big car, the private jet, that's what's really going on. And of course it leads to dodgy methods. Whatever it takes to get the job done, flattering people, manipulating their emotions, well, you know. That's the approach of a people pleaser. And if, after a season in a ministry, under a ministry like that, or in a church like that, you realise, gosh, that's what's been going on all these years, then what's your reaction? Your reaction is not only to push away from that person, but also from whatever they've been saying, whether it was true or not. And that's why it's so pa- Paul's so passionate in his defence of what he did in Thessalonica. He wants nothing to dilute their trust in the message about Jesus that he preached. Because the accusations about Paul are just not true. And that's why he appeals to them. He says, listen, look at my track record. You know I'm not a ple- people pleaser, I'm a God pleaser. 
Uh, he, verse 4, he came with God's message. He talks about a sacred trust there that God approved. Paul, Silas and Timothy, he trusted them and said, go and tell other people about Jesus. And that's why, if you look back to verse 2, we're jumping around a bit just to organise these different things he's saying. But he says, having suffered and been insulted in Philippi, instead of going off to a nice beach and sitting there in the Mediterranean sun to recover, which is what most of us would probably have tried to do, instead of doing that, he carries on to Thessalonica. And then when he gets kicked out of Thessalonica, he carries on to Berea. He just goes and goes and keeps on going with the message of Jesus because God has said, that's my job I've got you to do. And so he keeps going with God's message. God's motives, uh, verse 4, they weren't doing it for outward applause. They know that God tests our hearts. God sees inside you and me. He knows what's going on. And Paul says, listen, I want to live my life for an audience of one. Have you heard that phrase? So helpful. Live my life for an audience of one, for God's approval, even if nobody else notices. And actually, think about it. Think about actually the way it pleases God when we uh, tell other people about him. Uh, if, if, um, if you've done something in your family, and most people don't know it, and the next time you get together, um, the person in the family who does know it says, oh, do you know what, so-and-so, what you did? Do you, do you know what they did for me? the way they put themselves out, the way they really helped me. And you're slightly embarrassed, probably. But you think, okay. And actually, they, by talking about you and telling other people the good things about you, they actually are honouring you and glorifying you and, 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 and blessing you. And it's in that way, it's when we talk about God, when we say true things about him, it's not only a massive blessing to the people that we're talking about. Uh, sorry, it's not only glorifies God and pleases God, it's a massive blessing to the people we're talking to because we tell them about Jesus, the rescuer. One last thing under this heading, pleasing God. Paul also used God's methods. Verse 2, he told them God's gospel. Verse 4, they spoke. That's what's happening through with the kids. That's what's happening just now, isn't it? That's God's method. We tell people what really happened about Jesus, what he really said, what he was really like. We explain what he's done to save us. No manipulation, no trickery, no sort of spin, no sort of special effects, no advertising campaign. The truth passed from one person to the other in reliance on the Holy Spirit, as Anna prayed. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who brings real change inside as we put our trust in that truth about Jesus. That's who we want to be if we're teaching other people about God, if we're leaders, if we're sharing something with someone we're working alongside, if we're grandparents and parents uh, bringing up children. We want to be people who pass on what God says, what, whatever the approval ratings or pushback, because it's true, whether it's popular or not. We do it to please God, but we do it because we know how good he is and we want other people to know how good he is too. Genuine Christian ministry is pleasing God, not people. At the same time, it's loving people sacrificially. Real love for people comes out of real love for God and a desire to please him. So I, I, it doesn't always apply to churches. Sometimes people get themselves in a sort of a pious bubble, don't they? And they sort of, um, else I must please the Lord. And they become really obnoxious and difficult and awkward people. That's someone who hasn't quite yet grasped what it is to please the Lord and to be like Jesus. Actually, as we really 
receive God's love and he really is at work in us by his Holy Spirit, then actually we'll be loving people who will sacrifice ourselves and our own interests for others. That's what Paul does. Verse 8 is the key verse. It's on the front as our kind of theme verse for the day. We loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And that's what Paul did. He, he shared everything with them when he was with them in Thessalonica. He uses two powerful images to describe it. Verse 7, like a mother caring for her little children, and verse 11, like a father. Look at, look at verse 7 first of all. Paul the mother. Is that how you see Paul, if you know anything about him? Surprises quite a lot of people that he uses that. It's a really tender metaphor. Um, he's actually talking about a, a nursing mum with a newborn baby feeding and caring for this little tiny bundle of life working hard night and day changing nappies all the rest of it verse 9 in Paul's case it meant something very practical he was a tent maker by profession and uh, so he, that's what he did in Thessalonica to support himself and not be a financial burden to them because he wanted to tell them about Jesus and make it really clear that they didn't have to pay to become Christians. They didn't have to pay God back for what Jesus had done. It was all paid for, this being right with God through Jesus Christ. That his death had paid for everything. And so he wanted to make that crystal clear. And so he funded himself so they wouldn't get muddled up about the, the, the message or the motives and all the rest of it. He could have been a burden, he says in verse 6. But instead he sewed canvas all night so he could preach all day and they could realise it was a free gift. That's what parents do, isn't it? They sacrifice for their children. Notice too from uh, verse 8, two things that go together. Sharing your life, sharing the gospel. I love that pairing. It, it really helps me to think about what I'm aiming for as, uh, as I do my ministry here as we as a church uh, want to share the good news with people who are our neighbours. Uh, so for us in North Kensington, uh, for us at work, some of us in the daytime, uh, us in families, um, we already share our lives with people, don't we? We, we share life. Do you realise that if you love the people you share your life with, then you will share the gospel as well? You see the link there? If you had the cure for cancer... Wouldn't that be great? If you had the cure for cancer, you would share it with people, wouldn't you? Especially the people that you love the most. Well, if you know Jesus today, you know the one person who rescues us from the coming wrath. The saviour of the world. Doesn't the same apply? As we love people, we will find ways of sharing the gospel. We'll do something a bit, bit odd at work, like I know, have a Bible verse as our screensaver or something on our desk and pray that people might notice it and ask us why or put up a poster on the notice board and invite people to a lunchtime service down the road and put your contact details on it so people know who it's from. Or, or just ask people when you get a chance if ever, the, if ever there's a break in the work which nowadays it doesn't seem to be but if ever there is and you go out for a, a coffee or a drink afterwards and bring it up you know bring up sort of what do you believe 
Or bring up something you've been reading in the Bible. Why not people do it with TV? They tell us what what, what they've been watching on TV. They tell us when they've been watching sport. Why don't we tell them what we've been reading in the Bible? I realise it's a bit odd. But we'll do whatever it takes, won't we? If we love people, to share the gospel with them. Um, We've um, been doing something slightly out there over the summer. Uh, Three of us went out and um, were ringing some doorbells on Sunday afternoons and meeting some of our neighbours. I think all three of us who've done it have uh, really had a very positive experience of of meeting people in the community. It's been lovely. Um, it's a first step to getting to know some new people. Paul loved people sacrificially like a mother does. And verse 11, he was also like a father. And the picture there he uses is a, a, the father as a positive role model. Uh, verse 10, he talks about the character of a good father, holy, righteous, blameless, an example to the children. And then verse 11, the way a father tries to teach and train his kids, encouraging, comforting, urging them to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. Again, that's the ideal dads. Any dads in the room or any uh, future dads, any grandparents, that's what we want to be. Men of God-pleasing character who trust God and teach and train our children to do the same. And mums too, actually. Paul's saying he's like a mother and like a father. I don't think this is supposed to be gender-specific. He's just saying, let's, let's use an example of a good mother and a good father if we think about how we should love people sacrificially. Friends, this is what we want to pray for as a congregation, for our leaders, our parents, our grandparents, ourselves as an extended family, Sunday club leaders, preachers, the rest of it, that we would bring pleasure and delight to God. With the help of our God, as Paul puts it, In verse 2, this is what we want to be like. Pleasing God rather than people. And so loving people sacrificially like God does.